I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. The number of daily protests demanding police reform and an end to systemic racism have started to wane. So where does the Black Lives Matter movement go from here? Cheryl Davis is the head of San Francisco's Human Rights Commission, and she's been surveying people of color about what they want to see happen next. She's here with the answers and to explain why she thinks society will start to see big changes. Cheryl Davis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you, if only remotely. Hopefully we can see each other in person sometime soon. I know, in the near future. (laughs) Um, What has it been like for you to run San Francisco's Human Rights Commission during a time when so many people are talking about the issue of human rights and pointing out that, you know, so many people have more rights than others? And does your work seem more important than ever right now in that way? It does. It's funny because when we first went into shelter in place, I think like a lot of people, I was like, oh my goodness, like I'm going to be working remotely and everything will be online. And I was just here with somebody the other day, like you, you don't have travel time anymore. So everything is like really right next to each other. And so you don't get the chance to like leave the computer to go get a drink of water or walk down the street. It's, it's, I think we're probably working more now than we did before the pandemic. Yeah, there's not really any start or stop to the workday either because <laughs> you're just <laughs> exactly. always working. Yeah. So how does your work feel, you know, in these times of especially with the national protests around, you know, police reform and systemic racism? Does your work feel kind of more crucial than ever? Yeah, I think one of the things that... um we're kind of benefiting from is that the work that we've already been doing is kind of elevated Mm -hmm. and people are more responsive. And I think, you know, maybe a month ago, even, you know, definitely two months ago, if we had tried to say, oh, we need to center these conversations around black and brown people, I think it would have been a little bit harder. We would have gotten into more of like, well, everybody needs to be supported. But now with what's happening with COVID-19 for the Latinx population, what we see nationally with the black community, both in terms of death to COVID-19, but also to police brutality is like change that landscape. And it makes it easier to talk about our Samoan population of folks who are small number, but disparately impacted. So there's a lot of being able to say, like, we should seize this moment to push some of the things that um, didn't seem quite as important to folks, you know, three months ago. Yeah. They're taking your work more seriously. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And it seems like the daily protests around Black Lives Matter are starting to wane a little bit in terms of, you know, frequency and number. But I was wondering where you think the movement goes from here. And if you think, you know, this was sort of a moment in time or will it lead to lasting change? I do think it's a little bit of both. I keep saying to people like we need to hit while some of this stuff is still trending. Um, But there's a level of it that may wane. But the young people are not, they are going to be voting soon. They are changing things. And um, I think the structural pieces that we've become used to, they're not going to be in place. Um, When this group of young people are my age, it'll be a very different world. Mm. Um, I think that they've tasted um, the power of their voice and their movement. And I don't think that even though other people may begin to like ignore what they're doing, they're going to keep pushing. And um, when they're in power, it's going to be very different. Um, today, one pretty significant change was announced, which was that police chief Bill Scott said he will no longer release mugshots of people who are arrested, except in rare cases um, when the you know people, the public is in danger, um, because right. he said they tend to foster racial bias and kind of eliminate the presumption of innocence. 
what did you think of that? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I think it's the beginning of changing the narrative of changing how people see folks. I mean, I, I was talking to some folks who lead black, um, community-based organizations. They're led by Black people or they serve Black people. And they have just been saying how hard they feel like it is to change the narrative in the media, mm -hmm. that the media really only wants to show the mugshots. They don't want to do the conversation around the valedictorian or the student who is volunteering countless hours to deliver food. And so maybe if they have fewer of those images to show, um, the media will be a little bit more inclined to do other things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just, I, I mean, I appreciate um, Chief Scott. I know that he is working towards change and really trying to be collaborative. And so um, I'm grateful for that. Um, I think that that's the beginning stage, but I think the other piece of it is to not have mug shots in the first place, right? Mm. So what are we doing both on the prevention side, but then also to understand what contributes to who's being arrested in the first place? Right. What other changes would you like to see in the SFPD as we move forward? I mean, a lot of it is people are talking about it right now, right, in terms of when police are dispatched and what that looks like and how are we changing it to more community center, community led approaches. Um, you know, we partnered with Chief Scott and Mayor Breed um, just through some of the beginning pieces of the pandemic where certain communities and the mini parks and other things where folks wanted to call the police because people weren't social distancing or wearing their mask or um, they were sharing, you know, their water bottles or whatever. Um, you know, the chief and at that time, Captain Engler, who was at Northern Station, worked with us to say, we're going to pay people in the community to kind of be these ambassadors, to be out there, to pass out the gloves and sanitizer and face coverings. Um, you know, so I, I just... I think that we have to do more of that where we don't necessarily need police presence to say social distance and it doesn't need to be punitive um, and that we need to see what people's needs are if they need social connection or if they need um, to go out and get food and they don't have face coverings. I mean, when we were in the, the Tenderloin supporting Code Tenderloin, you know, we were giving out gift cards and um, what we called care kits and the care kits had like three sets of gloves, um, three face coverings, hand sanitizer. And people were like, I'm not that interested in the gift card. Give me the care kit because I can't <laughs> wow. buy all that stuff for $10. Right? Yeah. So, so I mean, there's more of this, like, what does it look like to see what some of those community needs are, fair evasions, things like that. Do we really need the police for that? Mm -hmm. um, so I think having more of those conversations, we've done some, community input sessions around the reallocation of SFPD dollars mm -hmm. for the black community that Supervisor Walton and Mayor Breed called for. And it's been interesting to hear what people are saying they want to see the money go towards, whether that is college scholarships or pipeline programs for teachers and doctors and mental health providers, or even just wanting mental health support, right? Yeah. Like that's been a really big one, which could impact how the police respond to a crisis. Are, are the answers kind of all over the map or does there seem to be one major thing that the community wants? They are kind of all over, but I would say the first one that I've heard very clear is accountability. Accountability for the way the city allocates dollars, accountability for how they check the return on investment. Like there's a sense that the city says they're putting all this money into the black community, but um, the black community doesn't feel it. We're hearing a lot from the mission and the Latinx community feeling like, you know, where are the resources? Where's the, all the things that we need to actually be 
not caught up in the pandemic and make it easier for us to not um, have to be more susceptible because of the living situations. So accountability, advocacy has been another one. Like they want to be able to um, advocate for what it is that's lacking. The education piece, really cultural programming has come up a lot. Mm-hmm. That um, part of the challenge is that there's no sense of self, um, no sense of not self, but self-knowledge and culture and embedding that and creating where you feel important and relevant in San Francisco. So there's been quite a few calls for cultural programming, Saturday school, or um, more funding specifically for um, programs that serve African-American youth with a, with that kind of lens on it. Like those are the main ones, but the more that we're hearing are things like being able to buy homes at 1940s prices during the time when um, Black people were losing their homes in the Fillmore mm-hmm. and like had to sell them for $5,000 because of imminent domain or being pushed out. I mean, who would have taken $5,000 in that time and converted into like those Victorians that are now worth millions of yeah. dollars? Yeah. Like it, you know, it just, you know, that would have been a really great investment plan. Yeah, no kidding. Sounds like the last Black man in San Francisco storyline exactly. in a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when you have these groups, do people say they want um, no police department they, or do they still want a police department, but just not to have as wide of a role as it plays currently? A little bit of both, but I will say I've been really trying to focus on because we just the budget is right around the corner and, and our charge was what do people want to do with the money once they get it? So we've really tried to focus on that. Um, there definitely has been quite a bit around police reform. Um, but, you know, do we want to take money that's allocated for the community and use it to train police officers? I think that's a very different bucket and pot of money. But there's definitely a lot of conversation around police reform, um, anti-racist trainings and workshops, um, screening, better screening process, and then again, rethinking what it is that the police do. So I think that's the one where they're like, we would see less money going to the police to do some of these responses and see more money going to mental health professionals. I mean, my favorite is this idea that barber shops and nail salons and other folks should be trained to be kind of officially mental health kind of like therapists to listen to folks. They kind of already are, but they should be paid for it, huh? Yeah. So that that is one that has come up about like, how do we train folks who already have relationships with people Mm -hmm. um, to be able to fill the gap in the void that we're experiencing? That's an interesting idea. I hadn't heard that before. That's yeah, cool. no, I, I was, I like that one. It's come up quite a bit, but that, I mean, we've heard in the past things like, you know, trusted messengers like grandmothers or people that are leading mentoring programs, like being able to support them mm-hmm. um, to lead some of this work. But I, I like the the barbershop. That's a, that's a good idea. Well, we've got to get them reopened then, I guess. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, maybe they could do this in between time and do some telehealth. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Do you think that average people in San Francisco are kind of coming to new realizations about um, racism and that it's really sinking in in a new way? Or is it just sort of like the trendy thing to say on social media? I think it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a lot of shame, though, right? Like like what we saw happen in Pack Heights, where even though we had already seen... um, kind of these things play out on national news where folks were reporting people or complaining about people who were actually, they belonged where they were. Um, And even, and who decides who belongs somewhere. Um, But it's, I was a school teacher for a long time and I actually worked in private school. And so I think about um, the evolution of my life. And when I was a teacher and the things that 
were said to me or just, you know, the way that I experienced things in this very different world. I lived on Fillmore and Eddie, and then I worked in Pacific Heights and I could oh, wow. walk home and I could see the difference as I walked down Fillmore and the closer you get to Geary Street and how things change. Yeah. Uh, perceptions, interactions, the way that um, people respond to behaviors was, I mean, I saw somebody literally do something on Fillmore and Eddie, and then they went and nobody, you know, the people called the police, they did whatever, and the police kind of blew it off. And that same person went up to Jackson and Fillmore, and they were arrested like within five minutes for doing mm. the exact same thing they had done on Fillmore. And what Eddie. was the so thing that just, they did? Do you remember? Yeah. So we've just have kind of, you know, it's interesting to see now, like, folks really embracing the conversation and wanting to um, delve a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another thing that hopefully we won't lose, that it won't be buried now that folks have their eyes open, that they'll be more inclined to kind of continue the conversation and be more aware. I'll be right back with Cheryl Davis. I'm back with Cheryl Davis, director of San Francisco's Human Rights Commission. The COVID-19 pandemic is exacerbating all sorts of inequalities that we kind of always knew were there, but now they're like right in our face, you know, whether it's um, different races being more likely or less likely to get the virus in the first place, um, educational disparities, income disparities, all sorts of things. Um, How are you thinking about these issues? And do you think that the fact that they're staring us in the face right now will force us to work on them? I mean, that is what we're hoping. I've heard from a lot of the communities that have seen additional attention because we want to make sure that they have the resources they need to stay inside or that they um, can limit their travel have said, look, you know, we don't want to go back to normal, right? Yeah. Because normal wasn't, so <laughs> wasn't good, yeah. right? We didn't, we're now actually food security is like a heightened awareness and there we're pouring more resources into some of the communities and that even some of the efforts around food were different than what we were doing before. Um, The education piece where folks are realizing that Wi-Fi is really not the greatest in certain communities and neighborhoods and just giving someone a device is not enough. Um, This idea of getting books and activities and supporting folks, all of that. Um, So we're really working hard to to ensure that folks who are afraid and worried that we're going to go back to normal that we don't forget about them because they felt invisible and forgotten and like there was no path forward out of poverty or um, experiencing some of the the disparities they were um, living through. So the challenge has been put to us. You know, I just had actually somebody email me from one neighborhood that was like, look, we are appreciating the work that is happening here, the way that the city has galvanized around us as a community. We really hope that once the emergency operations center is gone and once, you know, we come out of this, that we don't lose the opportunity to engage with the city and say what the challenges are and actually work on them collaboratively. And I know the Human Rights Commission is going to be part of Mayor Breed's committee looking at which statues in San Francisco should stay and go. And um, I can tell you from my email inbox after writing about the issue that it's extremely polarizing in San Francisco. Some people are really happy the statues are gone and some people are really irate about it. Um, Where do you stand on that issue? And do you see any statues still standing that you think are not appropriate in modern day San Francisco? Well, it's interesting. I I looked at your article and even some of the responses. So you're right, right? Like this idea of where people stand and how they um, 
respond to it. And it's been interesting to look at from the Maya Angelou's to the Bruce Lee's to mm -hmm. like all these ideas about like who there should be statues for. Um, it, you know, maybe a year or two ago, I was just, I was having this conversation with someone around as time changes, as history changes and our values or the narrative, it, it's a scary thing to think about putting up a person, right? Mm -hmm. Because in some ways, you know, 50 years from now, somebody may not value what we were doing at this point in time. It may shift, the narrative may shift. So you're always, you're always putting yourself um, at risk in putting up a person um, because we know them publicly and then something may have done, happened privately that we <laughs> yeah. didn't know. And then we're like, oh my gosh, why didn't we <laughs> recognize them? So I yeah. think I've always felt challenged with putting up people because people are flawed, mm -hmm. right? And that we live in the context of the day and time of where we are. But I do think that some things are so blatant and they're so um, just historically, the narrative has been told with that lens and not the full comprehensive holistic view. And we have to honor and recognize the total person. And that's really hard and challenging. And because we haven't had these race conversations as deeply as we're starting to now, that's going to be hard for some people to wrap their, their head around. We're not trying to undo history. We're just trying to change how we talk about history and and the impact that the past has had on the, the present yeah so are you saying that you don't um approve of putting any new statues of real people up and would rather maybe have a representation of a certain type of person like some people have said the ohlone indians could be represented in front of coit tower or something like that well it's funny valley brown was on something yesterday and saying like you know that folks had asked um, say some of the native indigenous folks, like, did they want a statue up? And they were like, we want the land. <laughs> you know, and I was Get like, you know, tower. it's again, like, how do we engage? What's that process? And I think um, if we're doing a process where folks are making a selection and it's not just a random person saying, you know, I really value um, uh, this person for this thing. Um, I think that's part of it is figuring out the process. How do we vet? How do we make sure I I'm not above or beyond or don't want people up there. I just want us to understand that it still may, like we may make decisions and somebody's going to probably still be like, well, you know, he wore too much blue. He was always <laughs> in blue. I don't, you know, like, I just think we're going to always have where people are going to disagree. Like, that's yeah. just life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if you could choose one person to be represented in San Francisco in a statue, who would it be? That is, that's a good question. You know, I have to say, I am a huge fan of Maya Angelou. I've got like, a, a, from my teacher days, I've got like all these poems yeah. memorized. So I would love to see Maya Angelou on a personal level. Mm -hmm. um, I just think she represents so much for the evolution of um, women, of Black people, of San Francisco, mm -hmm. of, you know, society as a whole, and just being able to capture that and challenge us all to be to be better and to do greater. And I think she's also shared her flaws. So there's not like a whole bunch to uncover that hasn't already yeah. been discussed. I can't imagine people in the future having a problem with her, but <laughs> famous last words, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, um, you've survived the serious questions and now it's time for the lightning round. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Okay, so my favorite place is, and of course, I just blanked on the name, um, but it's on 16th and Valencia. So it's like right there between um, 
like there's a little pizza spot that's mm -hmm. not very big and um and then like they've got all the little foo-foo stop show stores along that <laughs> yeah. street so i think I that know is my mean. favorite spot okay what was your favorite movie filmed in san francisco now that is a hard one so i finally saw last black man in san francisco and then i obsessed over finding where the house was and looking and knowing and identifying so i would say right now because that's top of mind last black man in san francisco because it just made me my mind was like spinning yeah it's a great movie where's your favorite place in san francisco to get a stiff drink thinking back to when bars are open all those years and years ago so if I'm totally honest, a stiff drink to me is a Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> and I am notorious during the summer when I used to run um, summer camps. Like people would say, because, you know, during the summer, they had like soda-free summer. Yeah. And so I was notorious for going to the liquor store, getting like a <laughs> bottle of soda and drinking it out of a brown paper bag oh, because awesome. I didn't want the kids to know I was drinking soda. So I would just say the liquor store. Wow. Like in That's funny. Store, like, <laughs> and then I was known to have like three or four bags of bottles laying around that people were like what's she drinking yeah in the middle of the day wow i can't that's a flashback to the time when our biggest issue was that kids were drinking soda wow <laughs> i wish that was still our biggest <laughs> issue this summer yeah right <laughs> uh what was the last book you read the last book i read actually my son and i have been going back and forth with um the pedagogy of the oppressed mm. wow so how old is your is son that and then I just started, um, I just finished this book that took forever the, called Unequal Childhoods, mm -hmm. Wow, which looks at the difference between socioeconomic groups and privilege and how people advocate for themselves, how families advocate for themselves and how that changes. So like if a child goes to the doctor and the parent has already primed them to say, tell the doctor what's wrong with you, tell, you know, like helping them develop those skills mm -hmm. and how that's different, maybe sometimes socioeconomically where other folks are just like, be quiet and listen and wait till they tell you what to do. Mm, interesting. How old is your son? My son is 21. Okay. What was your first concert? So this is what's funny. I did not do concerts as a young person. Uh -huh. So my first concert was either taking my son to Chris Brown or Kendrick Lamar. I can't remember. But okay. the funny thing is I took him to Kendrick Lamar and he was like 12 or 13. It was before Kendrick blew up and it was at the Orpheum and I couldn't find him. And I had never really been to a concert. So I was just like, what is going <laughs> on? Because they were like taking people out who had like drank too much. And I was just like, Oh my God. So I was looking for him in the, cause he had kind of ditched me and I was looking <laughs> for him in the thing. And the usher said to me, what are you look, are you looking for someone? I said, I'm looking for my son. And she said, what does he look like? And I was like, he's like 13. And he's this, she was like 13. Who brings a 13 year old <laughs> to a Kendrick Lamar? And I was like, sorry, I didn't, didn't know. He told me he was an R and B artist. <laughs> That's funny. That was my first concert that I remember. <laughs> Traumatic, it sounds like. <laughs> what is your favorite thing about the way City Hall operates? And what is your least favorite thing about the way it operates? Let's see. My favorite thing about the way City Hall operates. Um, Maybe that's the harder question. <laughs> that's the harder question. Um, I, let's see. I mean, I appreciate that. Um, there are so many coordinated efforts. I think that that I really appreciate that there are point people and that there are experts and senior advisors and folks that are all dialed in. Um, and I would say that's probably 
equally the same thing that makes it difficult, right? Because in some ways those become silos or gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is San Francisco as progressive as everybody thinks it is? I do not think so, but that is my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always say I'm grateful that I um, was born in Texas and I can have a lens for um, something outside of the bubble. Mm-hmm. I've moved around a lot in the Bay Area um, and have experienced a bunch of different things. But I think if nothing else, what we're experiencing now and some of the things that we've seen play out show that we've got a little bit more work to do. We are definitely more progressive than where I grew up in the South, but mm-hmm. um, not as progressive as we like to say we are. Yeah. Last question. What is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Um, what is something that I always make sure to squeeze into my busy day? Lately, more and more. So this is, <laughs> I've been, somebody was telling me like, this is crazy. So that, you know, you have to make yourself do a hobby to like relax. <laughs> yeah. So I have taken up two things that I'm trying to make sure I do every day. One is uh, <laughs> gardening, but I went and looked at my plants today. Like two of them had died. And then <laughs> the second is I've been trying to draw a little oh, bit wow. every day. And I showed, I showed someone a, a picture, I sent somebody a picture of one of my purple sheep that I was drawing and then a tree. And they were like, stick to the trees, sheep are not your thing. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so awesome. th- those are my two things I'm trying to like squeeze into my day every day. Great. Well, I'm glad you made time for me. Thank you so much for chatting. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Cheryl Davis for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening.